So it was really important for us to come together as an industry and focus on these major issues that occurred. And of course, uh, Superstorm Sandy was a bellwether event uh, that drove the importance of utilities to come together, particularly for larger storms, recognizing uh, the changes in weather patterns, the changes in climate, um, and of course the ferocity and frequency of, of storm activity. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Ten years ago, Superstorm Sandy brought severe winds and devastating flooding to New Jersey and New York. At one point, it actually engulfed 800 miles between the East Coast and the Great Lakes region, impacting customers in several additional states. The storm caused one of the most massive power outages in U.S. history, with about 8.5 million customers losing power at some point in parts of the Mid-Atlantic, the Northeast, and the Ohio Valley. The electric power industry always has focused on strengthening its industry government partnerships and on improving emergency response plans and processes, but Superstorm Sandy was a catalyst for rethinking how the industry organizes itself to manage major incidents. Those efforts resulted in significant enhancements over the past decade. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by American Electric Power Chair and CEO Nick Akins to discuss the lessons that the electric power industry learned from Superstorm Sandy, how the industry has worked with federal partners to improve emergency coordination, and how Superstorm Sandy forever changed the way electric companies plan for natural disasters. EEI's Senior Vice President of Security and Preparedness, Scott Aronson, will help to get the conversation started today. Scott, take it away. Hey, thanks so much, Nick. It is great to have you on the program. Uh, and uh, having AEP and your leadership uh, really is something that I'm excited to kind of drill into and talk about. Uh, there are not a lot of uh, chief executive officers in the industry with the operational background that you've got. So maybe just to kind of level set us, um, can you tell me a little bit about AEP, uh, about your time there, and about uh, your perspective on mutual assistance? Yeah, first of all, good to be with you, Scott. And obviously, an important subject that's developed over the years. You know, really, the Mutual Response Network is really unique um, in our industry uh, as we've progressed through the years. And actually, the Mutual Response uh, opportunities started in the 1950s. And uh, when I, I've been in this business for 40 years now, I started out in system operations as an electrical engineer in the, in the uh, dispatch and unit commitment and those types of areas. And certainly the system interface that occurs, obviously, when we have periods of extreme weather and, and one of the first reports I ever did was a significant winter event that occurred uh, throughout the Midwest and the south central part of the United States, it became abundantly clear of how important uh, the services that we provide, but also how important it is for the industry to be coordinated, uh, particularly in terms of the response around these kinds of events. And in the past, uh, you know, there was always uh, utilities, and usually it was regional utilities that got together uh, to focus on available resources that could be applied uh, when these storms occurred. Eventually, that, that branched out into regional response networks, or RMAGs, uh, regional, regional mutual assistance groups, that, that uh, formed together because they saw regional events occurring, and it was too costly for an, an individual utility 
to try to uh, have resources in place. And of course, taking advantage of your neighbors uh, in those times of needs was extremely important. And I think it really is one of the, the main differences of our industry uh, among other industries that remain highly competitive. Um, our industry have, has always been working together from that perspective. And it was really important for us to, to continue to grow uh, in that relationship, particularly as time went on and certainly uh, systems have changed dramatically over the years, whether it's generation, whether it's the transmission system itself, uh, but also in terms of the regions uh, and its applications relative to the ability to move uh, uh, rest restoration efforts as quickly as possible in this period of electrification. So, so, so it's really been a, a transitional process. And I remember um, when we had hurricanes come through uh, for even areas that aren't served by investor-owned utilities, uh, municipal uh, networks or, uh, or um, uh, other uh, networks like co-ops, uh, those, those uh, responses weren't really coordinated either. So, so it was really important for us to come together as an industry and focus on these major issues that occurred. And of course, uh, Superstorm Sandy was a bellwether event uh, that drove the importance of utilities to come together, particularly for larger storms, recognizing uh, the changes in weather patterns, the changes in climate, um, and of course, the ferocity of, and frequency of, of storm activity. So, uh, and Superstorm Sandy 10 years ago was the start of a major transformation um, of the regional response networks to really focus on national responses. So Nick, I, I really appreciate that. There are so many important topics you kind of introduced in there, and those are threads that we'll pull on throughout the conversation here. But I think maybe the overriding is two, two things I want to kind of highlight. One is the unique nature of mutual assistance in this sector, right? We've got this obligation to get the lights back on as quickly as possible because people's lives and communities depend on it. Uh, and then the other is this kind of evolution, right? Back in the 1950s, and, and to be very clear, you were not in the industry in the 1950s, <laughs> but we, we had mutual assistance in, in the 50s, these kind of bilateral agreements between companies, and then that evolved into a more regional structure, and that's continued to evolve. And, and you know, one of my favorite sayings in this industry is we want to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And to your point about uh, a Superstorm Sandy, that was an inflection point. That was a, you know, you shake up the snow globe and realize we've got to do things differently because the expectations of the customers and, and the communities have changed. So, so let's talk about Sandy really quickly. Now, if, if I'm right about this, uh, AEP serves uh, customers in 11 states, some right. of which were actually impacted uh, by Superstorm Sandy, not on the coast, right? Uh, Sandy hit in New York, New Jersey. Uh, but uh, there, people forget there was a pretty severe winter weather event inland at the same time. So maybe to the extent that you, you recall, take me through those couple of days as the head of AEP. What were you thinking? Yep. What was happening to your ser service territory? What was what were you doing for your customers? So we we knew, and actually, uh, this is another plug for the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, uh, who had been obviously working on getting the industry together in major events, we brought the group together to talk about the impending storm activity that would occur before Superstorm Sandy made landfall. And, and we obviously were concerned about not only the flooding impacts and the impacts on the Northeast, 
but also we did wind up with a with a winter storm that was with a substantial amount of snow, almost two and a half feet of snow, um, along with uh, basically sixty mile per hour winds, and and when and primarily hit our West Virginia and Virginia territories. We serve eleven states, as as you said, Scott, uh, from from the Midwest to the East Coast, all the way to the uh, to the Mexican border, and uh, and in, in certainly in those states. Uh, you see hurricane activity, you see tornadic activity. Matter of fact, 2012 was a pretty tough year because we had a derecho, which is the first time we ever heard of a derecho um, uh, 10 years ago in the same year uh, that took out 4.3 million customers um, in, in the area. So, and that was in the dead of heat in the summer. So it became really clear to us how important it was for pre-planning, pre-staging, and the activities associated with interfacing with our federal government partners uh, to enable uh, us to move as quickly as possible. Because in this area of electrification, there is no question after three days, customers are not happy anymore. And certainly if it falls any longer than that, which Katrina certainly showed, you have a breakdown of society. And, and that's really important that we understand uh, what our, our responsibilities in terms of uh, bringing that service back. And in some cases, like the nuclear industry, I mean, you're only as good as your lowest common denominator. And we recognize that any system in the U.S. that goes down and uh, for a particular period of time with a substantial amount of impact and can't restore services quickly enough, it's really a stain on the entire reputation of the electric utility industry. And Superstorm Sandy brought people together from that perspective. And I can remember in system operations, you rarely saw even the president of the company uh, that would be there in a, in a substantial storm activity in the dispatch center. Well, you know, we had the president of the United States on, on two of those calls, at least, and we met with him afterwards um, as well uh, with the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council. And so it was really important for us. And as you recall, that happened in November, October 31st and November 1st, our people were out uh, is really um, thousands and thousands of, of support personnel uh, that we're bringing people back. And, and, and the amazing story of the people involved um, to, to take care of this activity, both logistically and our line personnel, uh, certainly uh, in terms of um, uh, looking at assessments to be done. Um, our, our assessment people were walking in waist-deep waist snow uh, up mountains to see what the extent of damage was. And, and certainly, their stories of, of our people from a transmission uh, perspective, they carried um, uh, transmission equipment up mountains, non-hour trip, just, to, just with no cell service um, to restore power. And that's the kind of things that our people do. That's not just AP. That's the entire industry that comes together to do that. So we had we had our main issues were on October 31st of that year and November 1st. And then we started releasing crews um, to and, and thousands of crews uh, to um, uh, to the Northeast. And we worked in New Jersey and New York, Long Island, um, in the city itself. We supported Con Ed because we had underground capabilities. Um, and then, of course, um, in other areas of the Northeast as well. And so it was important for us to bring people together as quickly as possible EEI was certainly central to that because that was probably the first time EEI had someone embedded um, in the federal government, in the DOE and so forth, to help with the restoration efforts because we were looking for equipment, 
we were looking for uh, personnel. And actually, uh, I, if I, as I recall, it was like, and Scott, you may know, but 75,000 personnel were brought in, including from Canada, including from, um, we were we were bringing in equipment from California on, on um, military v, um, uh, aircraft. So it was really important for us to move as quickly as possible, particularly in a high population area uh, in urban settings, because um, the restoration of service is clearly important for society to continue. And so that was really a seminal event for us because it is said to the industry, we have to come together from a national standpoint and we had some impediments in the way. I mean, things you wouldn't even think about logistically. I and mean, we had the Canadians that were having to wait at the border um, uh, to go through processing to enter the United States before they could they could help us with restoration of service. And and you also had um, other other activities with state uh, uh, state crossings if they cross state lines. And at that point in time, you know, governors if they were if they had outages in their particular states. They had concerns with sending resources outside the state. So um, we had definite issues associated with that. And so it brought up a whole litany of questions that, that we had to get resolved to be able to respond to what we call these national events. And, and it, was, it, was, it was clearly an opportunity for us as an industry, but also with our government partners to come together and plan for the next event. And, and that was really a process that continued we had um, areas such as the regional response networks themselves. There were too many of them, um, particularly in the Northeast. There were three, I believe. We collapsed that into one. Um, that way they could marshal resources much more efficiently and coordinate with the other regional response networks more efficiently. So those were, those were just um, issues that, that brought the industry together in a way that we haven't before. And, and, uh, and actually it's, it's benefited not only the regional response associated with storms, but but cybersecurity as well. So um, it's it's really important for us to um, to understand that that uh, our service provided to customers is is just amazingly important for the reestablishment uh, of society. You know, it, it, so many again, so many of the things that you said there, it kind of takes me back, uh, and some of the things that we take for granted, uh, like you said, you know. Taking in crews from Canada, we've really worked to expedite getting folks over the border, uh, the cross, the pass-through states, uh, allowing uh, crews from all over North America to descend on the affected area. We've really expedited how that works, really building on not just moving the humans, but also moving the material and equipment and sharing more effectively. All these things that we we take for granted, the, the government partnership, and I, I really want to pull on that thread. Uh, you mentioned uh, the President of the United States at the time, President Obama, back in 2012. Yep. Part of the, uh, I guess, urgency uh, post-Superstorm Sandy to get the lights back on is uh, we were coming up on Election Day. Right. Uh, Keep in mind, so, it's the first of November. So that's yeah, right. Election Day was on. Yep. Yeah, so 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 President Obama, you know, we, I remember being on one of those calls and somebody was joking, oh, it's a heck of an Obama impersonation. It turned out it was the president of the United States. <laughs> but but to your point, I mean, I think CEOs, chief executive officers of electric companies from all across the industry, government leadership, whether the president uh, themselves or uh, or uh, secretaries and deputy secretaries of energy and other folks at the White House, we've really um, developed a center of gravity 
where government and industry and industry and industry can work collaboratively to expedite restoration of power. And, and something you said about <clears throat> the pre-positioning of crews, the moving folks into theater, the getting the lights back on, the really dangerous work and the really what, what can feel like thankless work of trudging up hills, you know, nine hours in the snow. Uh, I think people don't fully appreciate that the crews that descend on an impacted area don't just get there by magic. There is an awful lot of logistics and planning and preparation and then wraparound services and support for those crews who are going to be in really dangerous working conditions doing 16, 18 hour days for maybe a week or longer. Can you talk a little bit about, again, as, as sort of an operationally focused chief executive officer, uh, some of the um, things that you've seen through the years as you have uh, deployed people for your own uh, company's restorations and, and for other restorations uh, across the industry? Yes, yeah, Scott, it certainly varies according to the storm. And in this case, you know, where you have massive damage, you don't have hotels, you don't have places to stay. Um, and if, if our, our uh, lawn personnel and everyone is working 16 hour uh, days, uh, we have to have some place for them, not only food preparation, which, uh, you know, for 75,000 people, that's quite an undertaking to make sure that they're staged in the proper areas, that they have work plans um, that they can execute on, uh, but also a place to lay down. And, and sometimes, sometimes that's in their truck. Uh, because there's just nothing available. And I don't think anyone really can appreciate the magnitude of what these individuals going into those areas are experiencing. Typically, there's no support functions. Um, I mean, natural support functions. We, we set up tent cities and we do all those kinds of things to ensure that there is a staging area um, that has food preparation, that has cots, um, intense. And, and in many cases, it's, it's really, um, they don't know what the plans are until uh, assessments are done out in the field by another set of employees. And then once those assessments are done, work packages have to be put together uh, for reestablishment of the service because it is a dangerous product. And you have to make sure that, that safety remains number one uh, through the entire process. And then the work patches themselves, the teams go out with their particular um, uh, assignments for the day and they move on those assignments as quickly as they can, but as safely as they can. And, and in, in a lot of cases, um, they are away from a, a week, two weeks. In a lot of cases, I know Super Storm Sandy, our people were two to three weeks. And, and, uh, and certainly in Puerto Rico, that, that wound up a situation as well uh, that, that we also uh, lived through. But Superstorm Sandy, was probably the first time we had um, such a massive effort converging on one area of the country. And just keep in mind, you can't have 75,000 people show up and say, oh, what do we do now? Um, and, and you also have to have staging areas because you can't have, you know, a hundred people working on, on one, uh, one issue. So um, it's very careful staging from that perspective. And then from the operational standpoint, to piece a system back together it takes a lot of immediate system planning type of activities on the part of engineers, relay planning associated with that, because you're, you're basically parceling the system back together and in doing so flows are different, conditions are different, and you have to make absolutely sure that you're closing in on the right circuits and also bringing load back as you can. 
Otherwise, you wind up with a worse situation. So it's really um, a very touch and go type of activity, but one that's well thought out with a lot of professionals um, that are experienced in this regard. And it was absolutely important that we leverage that experience throughout the entire industry. And in fact, in this case, uh, it turned out to be uh, a resounding uh, success and, uh, and one that we uh, uh, laid the foundation for continued growth. And as we looked at, at, at EEI, EEI CEOs came together. And, and Scott, I, if you want me to go ahead and cover the, uh, uh, the uh, national response events, or I, I can do that. Um, yeah, we, we met as CEOs and decided we've got to learn from this. And we've got to continue to grow as, a, as an industry. So we started a, re, a review. And as I mentioned earlier, we brought three RMAGs together, uh, the regional response networks uh, in, in the Northeast, brought them together. Uh, so it dropped from 11 to 9. And then also set up uh, interfaces that would occur between the, the uh, regional response networks uh, that would not only allocate resources and allocate personnel, allocate equipment um, in a priority standpoint from a national uh, uh, perspective, and we would have the RMAGs come together to do that um, through a national response event network um, with executives and executive council for the NRE um, that would work through those kinds of allocations. And, and that was clearly important. Also, EEI uh, came up with uh, the opportunities to maintain a database of available equipment so we knew where it was, when it, um, when it was available, and of course, keeping up with contractors as well and where they're located because the contractor uh, uh, people are obviously important to the recovery of service as well. In doing so, all those precursors were set so that when another storm, uh, major storm occurred, then uh, the uh, CEO could call the other CEOs and establish a national response event. And then that sets in course action of priorities, action of, of making sure resources are placed and on the way um, and ensuring that we're as efficient as possible um, with the reestablishment of service. You know, so I like to simplify things and with, um, Mutual assistance, I think what people don't fully recognize, but this is why we're talking about it is first you have to access the impact area, then you have to assess the damage, and then you begin the business of restoration and to the conversation all along, right? Sometimes that's these bilateral, oh, it's not that bad a storm, one company, two companies can, can help. Uh, but as you start to get to these bigger uh, events, whether it's a Superstorm Sandy, whether it is uh, some of the storms we've seen recently, whether it's a Maria and the way that it hit Puerto Rico, whether it's Irma or this past year, Ian, moving tens of thousands of crews from all the segments of the sector, from all over North America, getting them into theater, keeping them safe, getting the power back on as efficiently as possible. When you start to talk about it in those terms, first you recognize that it is not as simple as it sounds. You know, folks see those bucket trucks, the convoys, rolling down the interstate, uh, you know, to go to get the lights turned back on. But, but that, that by itself requires an extraordinary amount of logistics and planning uh, and then getting to the affected area and doing it safely and hit, getting the most number of customers back on as quickly as possible uh, and then going to the hardest hit areas. Again, I, I don't think we can tell the story often enough so that people recognize just how extraordinary it is 
and how heroic the line crew are uh, who get out there and, and do this work under really, really challenging conditions. So, so I appreciate you kind of highlighting that for us. And then the second part of that is we, the electric power sector, simply can't do it alone. Uh, it requires the ability to move into theater, and that's going to be transportation issues. It requires visibility into the impacted areas. Sometimes that is with drone flight. Sometimes that's with satellite imagery. Sometimes that's with just getting crews on the ground. Uh, and, and then it's all of those services and support and keeping folks safe. And you start to understand first why the CEOs in the industry wanted us as a sector to not think in silos as these individual companies and then as regional groups and then ultimately, you know, now from a more national perspective, but also why we wanted to work closely with government, right? Unifying effort and unifying message, showing that industry and government at the highest levels have the same goal in mind, and that is to get the lights back on as quickly as possible. And so to, to your points, the National Response Event Framework, the NRE, uh, was an offshoot of something we basically made up on the fly during Sandy because it required so many tens of thousands of people from so many different parts of the country and so much government support. Uh, and, and then uh, that, that growth of that industry government partnership, which doesn't just you know, kind of continue to this day, but has evolved dramatically. So you've had a really interesting viewpoint. Uh, you were, uh, again, a chief executive officer at the time of Sandy. Uh, you've now seen the NRE and the Sector Coordinating Council evolve. Uh, we've deployed it for things like Maria and Irma and Ian and others. Um, talk a little bit about that perspective, about what you've seen over this decade, and maybe where you even yeah. see it going uh, as we continue to evolve uh, so that we can support our customers and get lights back on uh, as quickly and effectively as possible. You know, uh, Scott, e every storm we have is unique in, in some situation, and it's something that we learn from. And as we've progressed, obviously that set the foundation for how we come together from a national response event perspective, the pre-calls that occur associated with staging of resources at the right time. But every storm is different. I mean, um, if a, a, a winter storm is very different than, than a flooding uh, storm like a hurricane, for example. So, and, and a lot of times people just don't understand that you can't get resources in place to start reconstruction efforts if if wind is blowing in excess of 30 miles an hour or, or if there's still water from, from flooding um, or, or you know, other types of issues that have to deal with, like in many cases, you have to get the National Guard, the Corps of Engineers, uh, others involved to remove, uh, do, do uh, road removal top activity to ensure we can uh, stage the resources in place. So it really is an, uh, an all points bulletin for everyone um, in the government and the utility industry to come together. The more we, uh, you know, the, I guess the fortunate thing is we drill that um, on, a, on a regular basis, different facets of it, but even more so we're learning from every activity. So when you had, um, for example, Maria um, uh, and Irma, Irma, I mean, hit Puerto Rico, um, uh, that brought up a different situation. Uh, it brought up the situation where how do we stage resources in a, in a remote island uh, from the mainland. And um, their utilities came together with FEMA and others um, to, uh, to come together to focus on uh, how do we stage those resources across. So blue water vessels taking bucket trucks over 
um, and uh, staging in different parts of the uh, of Puerto Rico and areas that there, you know we never had been to before. Um, our company supplied resources uh, and that worked in the mountainous areas of, of Puerto Rico, um, and it was an interesting effort there as well because you had to think about um, you weren't just going over the mainland; you were going overseas uh, to figure out how to how to restore this, this service. And and I think there's there's a lot of learnings that go on associated with that. One of the main areas, the efforts going in place to make sure the system is more resilient um, is clearly a learning opportunity from the storm activities that we've had. And, and certainly Florida Power and Lot and others, uh, Energy and others have really focused on it. We've done that in our, in our Texas territories, uh, Corpus Christi and South Padre Island because hurricane activity. Um, and it's really reinforcing the grid on the front end to be able to alleviate the impacts enough to where you can get in and, and recover very quickly. I mean, one example that I, I just speak of, that one of the learnings is, is um, you know, we used to build everything the best we could, uh, cross arms, for example, where you have poles and you have cross arms that, that hold the lines. We actually made the cross, cross arms weaker um, because we wanted the line to come down because the most of the time was spent putting a new pole back up. So if the pole was still there, um, then then you know we had a real opportunity to bring back service much more quickly. It's it's really things like that that may go converse to what you're originally thinking, but also uh, in terms of those affirmative actions that you take relative to um, reinforcement resiliency with new materials, concrete, steel, um, other other areas to ensure. Um, that you can maintain service as much as possible and then ameliorate the impacts of, of uh, uh, system uh, degradation so you can re repair it more quickly. So the, those, are, those are the kinds of things that we've learned. Um, and as we've come together more, we've also brought in, um, like I said earlier, the co-ops and the, and the municipals as well uh, in those conversations. So every storm, there are ESCC calls that occur with the CEOs, the affected CEOs, um, and, and it really is a focus with the government entities as well to make sure that we're all working together with the same uh, focus on communications and the same focus on uh, purpose. And that's that's um, uh, clearly been a major undertaking for the industry, but one that's just gotten better and better. You know, one of the things you said, Nick, that I think is in, particularly important is the notion of safety. Um, You've got thousands of people from out of state working on a system that they might not know quite as well. Can you talk a little bit about how this industry doesn't just prioritize the speed of restoration, but also making sure that it's done as safely as possible? Yes, Scott, obviously safety is number one in our industry because uh, it is, it has to be dealt with in a very delicate way, particularly in terms of restoration of service. Uh, you know, electricity can kill people and it has killed people and, and certainly um, and it could be everything from, you know, everybody thinks of electric, electrocution, that kind of thing. But also, it's also, you know, moving materials. Like if they're, if they're trimming away trees, um, they could roll over. Uh, certainly, you can have uh, other uh, uh, um, assets that will fall um, and hit people. So you have to be absolutely really careful about how you recover the system. Now, I'll say that typically what we see in these kinds of environments, because you are sending uh, individuals who may not be 
fully understanding what the territory looks like or, or unfamiliar with the territory, unfamiliar with the system, unfamiliar with certainly the people that they may be working with. And it's absolutely critical that there's a common view of what the processes and procedures are uh, for recovery of service. So when these work packages are sent out, I mentioned work packages earlier, this is really not only the locations, how to get there, all those kinds of activities, but also the staging of equipment. Do you have the right equipment? Um, are you doing your safety tailgates beforehand to understand what the process is? Um, also, are you taking the process uh, procedures step by step um, uh, very literally so that we can ensure the, the, the safety of everyone that's involved. And that's really critical in these kinds of situations because it is unfamiliar territory. Now, every individual is, has the expertise to get the job done, but uh, even from a safety perspective, different regions of the country do things differently. Uh, they have different rules for safety-related activities. We're trying to make that more consistent across the industry. Uh, but nevertheless, there are different procedures for different activities based on where you're at in the country. And so um, usually it's the host utility uh, that uh, will define what those parameters are. And so that's critical for us. And, and usually our outage-related activity, particularly in these storm uh, types of activities, uh, we have impeccable safety records. And the reason for that is because people know they're going into unfamiliar territory. They're more likely to take uh, care in terms of every procedural step that's taken, and they're much more careful. So, so typically that's the case. But um, uh, we, we have to make absolutely sure that we have the right people with the right resources, with the right procedures to ensure the safety of everyone. And that includes the public, uh, because there's no question that when you're bringing back resources that are maybe laying on the ground, uh, it's incredibly important that the, that the safety of, of, our, of our customers are also paramount uh, in that recovery effort. What you just said about uh, the general public is something we talk about all the time during storms. We amplify to the public. We yeah. know the line crews are heroes and we know you want to thank them. Please stay away from them and let them do their work. That's right. That's right. It is a line person's finest hour, though, because these these individuals that go out and bring this service back, they're the only ones that can do it. Um, and when neighborhoods, when their lights come on and the cheers occur and the food comes out, um, it really is uh, a line person's finest hour. And, and they they love it. It's worth it at that point. I love it. Well, Nick, look, I, I could talk to you about uh, about mutual assistance and system resilience uh, all day, honestly, because I, I just think that it's something that is genuinely unique about this sector. I, I think it's something we all can be proud of. And, and I know you're getting ready to uh, retire here soon, but uh, just you know, on that last question, again, we've seen uh, some extraordinary things over these last uh, 10 plus years, and it's really a good foundation to continue growing on. I, I think there's a lot of uh, armchair quarterbacks or, or armchair electrical engineers out there <laughs> yeah. who, who think you know they, they know best about resilience and, and about mutual assistance and storm response, but uh, I don't think there are many that know quite as much as you. So uh, I just want to thank you again for your leadership. I've learned a ton under your uh, 
uh, under your time as a CEO on the Sector Coordinating Council and helping to lead the national response event framework and, and get it established and looking forward to see where it goes for the next uh, 10 years and beyond. So thanks again for uh, spending a little bit of time with us today on this podcast. Thank you, Scott. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.